Welcome to a special pre-Olympic edition of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and joining me as always is my dear friend and Olympic enthusiast, Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. I have Olympic fever. You do. You just came back from London. I think it's one of those things that came over on the plane with you. Yes, so. Yeah, maybe. I did stop at the London 2012 shop at Heathrow, because mm-hmm. I did got there a little bit early, so... I bought my Team GB wristbands, mainly just because I think the pattern is cute. That's good. With the light blue, it looked good. Uh, yeah, I liked how she incorporated like the Union Jack in there. Um, and then I got this little rubber ducky that is the, like, it's like a Wimbledon, or no, sorry. It's a tennis at the Olympics rubber ducky. So it's like purple um, and green. And it's a rubber ducky with like a little headband. Why not? Racket. I mean, that makes sense, I guess. It just seemed like one of the more random Olympic e souvenirs I could get. So it's rare to even, you know, the Olympics happen all sorts of strange places. It's rare to be somewhere even near when Olympics is happening. So you might as well splurge. Exactly, that's the thing. I mean, I think I kind of, I think that's part of why I'm like super excited about the London Games. Is just that it's a city that I love. It's a city that I know. Um, you know, the landscapes are familiar especially coming off of Beijing where we kind of didn't really know what the heck we were going to see <laughs> right? and what was going to happen. Like, I kind of feel like with the London games, there's a familiarity and a predictability about it. So hopefully, I mean, not like on the field or in the pool or predictability, but at least just the way the games are going to kind of happen. Hopefully there's a predictability. About right, it. We sort of know like Britain, we know what your deal is. Like, I yeah. feel like with China and Greece, there was sort of this air of, are they ready or, you know, is something going to go horribly wrong? Is everyone going to choke on the air and die? You don't get that with London. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember from Beijing, the big thing was the pollution, at least to me. Yeah. The tennis players first arrived and, like, literally they could not breathe. And then I remember with Greece, it was like, oh, my gosh, um, buildings and stadiums are going to collapse. Or they're just not going to be ready. And it might have to sleep on boats. Like, because there wasn't enough housing or something. But, um, hey, it all worked out in the end. Yeah, they do. I think Olympics have a way of sort of coming together, and I guess there's nothing really to do before the games but fret over the details. So true. Although the whole security issue seems to be worrisome, but anyways. Yeah, you don't have. You're not willing to put a uh, couple of surface-to-air missiles on the roof of your place in San Francisco area. I'm totally fine with that. I, you know, I don't really have a problem with there being like too much security. It's the whole issue of the. The security firm that they did hire, which happens to be the same security firm that that is hired for Wimbledon, so you you recognize their little logo. It's like GS4 or something like that. Anyways, um, they admitted that they didn't supply enough people. Interesting. So they've had to like come before Parliament and get like yelled at, um, and like military, and that's why there's more military involved. I don't know if you've looked at pictures of um, the All England Club right now <clears throat> um, on the wire. But there's like tons of pictures of just military like guys in camouflage like wandering the All England Club, and that's partly why, is because um, yeah the you know the, the the British military is now involved in order to make sure that there's enough security. Which I don't know. That's just sort of a European thing, though. I think maybe we're just not an American thing. 
that, you know, when I was in London, you saw, like, police or paramilitary, whatever they call them, security type people, just, you know, hanging out outside the entrance of Parliament holding a machine gun. True. It's just different. We don't really get that here. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, not not like now. I mean, we used to, like, post 9-11. I mean, you live in D.C. Like, you must yeah. have been the worst of it. But, right, um, but it seemed like sort of their default, you know, measure for what the person should be. There should be some guy with a machine gun. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. If it works, I'm totally down with it. They're doing okay for themselves. They are. Other people who are doing okay for themselves include anybody who's playing a tournament that's not the Olympics right now because there are points to be had like crazy. Julia Cohen. Julia Cohen is playing Olga Puchkova tomorrow in a WTA semifinal. Let's in, step back and realize that's happening. In, in Eurovision's heart and soul. Of Baku. That's right. Yeah, no, it's pretty nutty. I mean, like, Alexandra Krunich won, like, a couple of matches this week. Uh, uh, Boyana uh, Jovanovsky did as well. Yeah. There's some crazy, I mean, Benoit Pair is the number one seed in L.A. I mean, it's just crazy time. Ryan Baker was a seed in L.A., which when you, I mean, he's not ranked that low anymore. He's, like, in the high 70s. But when you consider where he started, where he was a year ago, he was at, like, 700-something. And a year later, he's a seed in L.A. So. And he- first round and he did lose first round but i was gonna ignore that part on his behalf it doesn't it doesn't work well for the hollywood story so no not quite but yeah so you were at a couple tournaments that had a sort of different vibe this year because of the olympics overlap so let's hear about about your california swing so so obviously i was in um london for the uh for wimbledon and then i flew home and went straight to stanford because i was I was kind of hoping Serena was going to pull out. And in fact, I was pretty much betting on her pulling out. Um, and she never pulled out. So I had to keep, uh, I had to go down there. And, uh, you know, attendance was not great, although it was it was pretty good considering, you know, the only real big name was Serena. Um, it looked okay on TV when they showed it. It didn't look bad. Yeah, I think for the final, so long as they had Serena, they could sell advanced tickets throughout the year, um, which they always were able to do. So I think that once people had tickets in hand, then it was obviously a beautiful day and all that sort of stuff. And Coco Vandaway was in the final, so there was an American slant to it as well. So so attendance in Stanford was good. The, the tournament was, was, you know, the same as it's always been. So, you know, just a bit of a weaker field. But, you know, all in all, it was fine. And, and Serena won, and so it was, it was good for the tournament. Then went down to San Diego to the Carlsbad tournament, the Mercury Insurance Open, which has now been the management of that tournament. has been taken over by the same group that runs Indian Wells. The, and the minute that you like, and so I was excited to come down to see kind of how things had changed because the last couple of years that I'd gone, it was pretty evident that the tournament was being run on a shoestring a little bit. Like, you know, they were, they're investing just enough to where they would get a return mm-hmm. and and it just it just kind of showed there were just little decisions that were made where you know the signage looked a little cheap or you know the the little food village just didn't look right and it didn't feel right it wasn't it didn't feel like a place you wanted to hang out and that's completely different this year i mean the, the indian wells folks know how to run a tournament Pull, you know they pulled down the tarps around the practice courts which i've been complaining about for two years so you could actually see people practice, and fans seem to love that uh, a lot. Who wouldn't? Uh, who wouldn't want to get to see Marion Bartoli tethered to a fence? You know what? If you came every single day, that's what you saw. Yeah. Because I have pictures from at least three separate days of her being tied to the fence, so it was pretty great. 
I've talked to her. I asked her about that once. There was no real way to dance around the whole, why are you keep getting tied to this fence question. So the thing I just said, and she was like, it helps me strengthen my legs or something. Cause I had some leg problems. Like there are ways to do that. That don't involve, you know, Rottweiler tactics, but yeah. And the funny thing is, is that like he does this. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, Marion Bartoli practices with these kind of elastic bands uh, hooked around her ankles and then fastened to a fence on an upward slant, you know, like a 45 degree angle-ish, mm-hmm. maybe a little that. And she practices, at least whenever I've seen her do it, she she does that and then practices serving. And it's weird. And people, <laughs> people see it. And, like, she's sitting there practicing and literally standing five feet from the fence where people are standing. And people are just outwardly laughing. <laughs> it's hard not to, though. It's so weird looking. It's weird. But yeah. it worked for her. You know, so that's the thing with Bartol. You can't really knock the results. Can't you really can't? So she'll she'll just keep on keeping on. Uh, but yeah, so you could see the practice courts. The new food village looked good. It was you know more open, and they put like big screens so you could like keep up with the action while you sat there and ate, which they didn't have before. It's like the same food vendors as like in Indian Wells. So yeah, I mean the tournament on on the whole, in terms of of how it was run and. At least the overall field was quite nice, but with the really, really weak field for Premier Tournament, it was super weak. Um, Marion was the top seed, and Sabolkova was the number two seed. Uh, the attendance was pretty dismal. Yeah, it, it just, you know, it was better than it has been in years past in terms of them being able to like the people that were there generally were like sitting in the lower bowl, like so they had bought the expensive tickets, mm-hmm. but. So, but then the grandstand, like the bleachers up top were relatively empty. But I mean, I think most people saw it on TV. I mean, that was it as full as they could get it down there. And, and it did. And it's not a downtown location. Is that right? No, it's, it's a, not close to downtown at all. It's uh, in Carlsbad, which is about minutes north. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's a hike to get out there and, and parking isn't cheap because it's the La Costa Resort. There's nothing that the tournament can do about that. That's La Costa charging uh, whatever it wants to charge for parking. So, you know, it felt like people, once people were there, like once they decided to come, they were having a good time. But uh, I think it was it was pretty tough to, to get out there. But hopefully it gets, you know, some good kind of word of mouth reviews. And I think that they understood that, you know, they were kind of in a tough grind uh, this year because of the Olympics. Yeah. It happens for these tournaments. They just have to learn sort of a, to take a bullet every four years. And it happens in D.C. in the Washington tournament, which is starting uh, next week and actually overlaps with the actual Olympics, not just the build-up to it. So they have nobody who's playing the Olympics who's playing there, whereas San Diego had a couple people, I think. Yeah, it's just, I think, I'm not exactly sure why the ATP lines up Washington with it. I'm not sure why the ATP or WTA has any tournament concurrent to the Olympics. I think that idea is just sort of ridiculous to have a lesser event going on the same week as the Olympics. No other sport does that. Right. Um, especially considering that Washington on the men's side is a 500. It's a big tournament for the men. And uh, for that, there to be this many points up for grabs and to have it sort of be out there as possible... I don't know, a possible enticement for players not to play the Olympics, I think is ridiculous. But, you know, it goes back to, to our toss debate yeah. about whether tennis belongs in the Olympics. And yeah. obviously, I have read the polling, Ben won by a landslide. 
understand. Everybody loves tennis at the Olympics. I love tennis at the Olympics. It doesn't mean that it necessarily belongs there. But that being said, like, this is kind of one of the, the problems is that, you know, from an optics standpoint, like, if the tours are running tournaments concurrently with the Olympics, doesn't that kind of, you know, detract from actually how important tennis sees the Olympics? Because, yeah, that, that's not done during during the, the slams, obviously. It's not done during Davis and World Cup or Cup. Uh, you know, tournaments go on hold for those as well. So it's just a little bit gutless of the ATP, I think, not to not to just cancel a tournament once every four years. And that would be a completely reasonable thing to do. Maybe have some tournaments that are like the 250s, like Atlanta, L.A., now uh, Winston-Salem, whatever. Say, okay, once every four, maybe once every 12 years, you guys are going to rotate and you won't get to be around during that time. We're going to have this week off. Deal with it. I mean, or just that's... move it around somewhere. It can happen. Yeah. I, you know, it's, yeah, it's just weird because basically the ATP, just like the WTA, you know, has to field, you know, those contracts with the tournaments. They guarantee a certain level of field, right, to yeah. the tournament. And there are penalties, financial penalties, if the ATP doesn't deliver. So I think that effectively they would just rather have, like, the tournament there and just, like, pay off the penalty, I guess, than not have it there. I, I guess so. I mean, the thing about Washington is Washington is a really, really solid tennis attending community i mean leg mason tournament has gotten great fields really they sell out several sessions of tournament or if not sell out they at least get 95 percent on a very regular basis with fields that have not included any of the big four in the last six years so for men's tournament that's pretty impressive mm-hmm. and i think they put them up against the olympics in, in part because they know that they can survive it in 08 they had roddick who skipped beijing to play to stay in the u.s which helped but they they didn't really have much worse attendance in 08 until the draw when until Roddick lost and the draw completely fell apart when you had something happen like a Troisky Kunitsin semifinal which is just that just shouldn't happen. That just happen. <laughs> I mean I actually don't I actually didn't go to that match it was a semifinal in my home tournament and I live like a mile and a half from the grounds and I was like you know what it's been a long week I don't really need to see Tro- Troisky Kunitsin. And then Troisky, it was this is back when Troisky might sound like a name now, but he was not at that point. He was ranked like 80-something. Anyway, so yeah, so they do it because they can take the punch. And Washington has been very good about attending it. This year it'll be a WTA tournament as well. And even though it's an international level, WTA, which is the lowest level, the Olympics being there sort of equalizes the field. And arguably, the WTA field is better than the ATP field this year, which is sort of cool. So... Who is going to be there? Um, Pavlyuchenko will be there. Uh, ben- Benisova. Um, I could look at a list. But like Sloane Stevens will be there. That's a big get for them for an American tournament during the Olympics. Basically for the women, all the women who are not playing the Olympics, save for Marion Bartoli, all the top women basically show, are showing up. Pretty and great. Could, and, and the men is not that much the case. I don't understand why there's a lot of guys not coming to Washington because it is points in a barrel. Just come here and get your 500 points and go. You Basically, complain hmm? about me. all the guys sit here and complain about money, and here's some free money, and they're not going to come and get it. Absolutely, it's too hot there. People complain about the heat. Ernest Gulbis doesn't come anymore because it was too hot. Like Ernest, you know, get out Ernest, of kids' behel. Yeah. Come to Washington, get your 500 points. Ernest also doesn't need the cash. No, yes, that's true. But he could use the ranking points. 
I mean, that this move, if somebody like around around number 70 in the world wins this tournament, which is completely likely if it's not Fish or Dolgopolov who win it, if somebody like that wins it, they'll be immediately like in the top 40. Yep. I mean, you. I don't know, if not higher. I don't know how you can turn that down, but, you know, these things happen. Want a vacay. Yeah, I guess. And you do, I guess it might be bad for morality playing in this sweltering D.C. heat while uh, everybody else is off in the cool breeze at the London Olympics, but, you know, get over it. Apparently sweltering there. In London? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Really hot. By the way, did you notice that this order of play came out for London tomorrow and there are two women's matches on center court? I did not. Well, I I knew the order of play, but I didn't make that connection. Interesting. Yeah, there are four matches on center court, two men, two women, which the All England Club has never done before for Wimbledon. That is, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, as JJ would say. uh, Speaking of oh my goodness and JJ... Poor, poor her with these straws lately. Bad luck, man. Yeah. That said, when you're losing to Letitia Chan, <laughs> I don't know that you get to be a, a chooser. That was entirely a fair critique. How, um, was, how was Letitia's ma- magical run through San Diego? It was great. I mean... Let me give some background but for people who don't know the Letitia mythology. So Letitia Chan, uh, a.k.a. Chan Young Jan, a Taiwanese tennis player who... For whatever reason in my head, I thought that she was like 24 or 26, and she's not. She's 22 years old. Yeah. Very young. Um, but uh, she's a Taiwanese tennis player, um, and she had a great run um, in Carlsbad making the semifinals um, and uh, beat Yelena Yankovic. Kind of was, was the big win, um, that uh, biggest win of her career. Um, anyways, she's kind of had a career where she's been racked with injury and illness. She had a, a surgery uh, earlier this year to remove a cyst in her abdomen. Um, and her ranking basically dropped uh, to, I think she went into the tournament maybe 161 or 170, somewhere around there. Yeah. Had to qualify. Um, and then as a qualifier, made the semifinals. So it was a great run for her, a career run. Charming, charming girl. Um, woman, sorry. Um just, you know, really good English and, and kind of sarcastic and uh, great sense of humor. So the interviews with her were, were really great. And so, you know, there was, uh, you know, I've, I've written about it before, but or last week, but just, you know, we asked her how she got the name Letitia. And she explained it very matter of factly that, that a friend of hers, she needed to get an English name, um, which is a thing within Asian culture, in case people don't know, like, for example, especially, especially Taiwan, for some reason. Taiwan, but like it, it happens to almost anybody who has like kind of a very traditional name. For example, Courtney is not my birth name. It wasn't my birth name when I yeah, was born, hence the word birth name. Uh, but everybody kind of comes up with their own English name or like whatever at some point in their life. And so she asked a friend of hers who lived in the States and who went to school here or something, you know, give me some names. And he was like, Letitia, and she, she liked the sound of it. And she asked him what it meant. And he said, a black girl who loves sports. And she Which was is a great answer for that question, by the way. Um, and so she said, yep, that sounds right. I'm going to go with that. And so it was just kind of hilarious because if you can imagine kind of the very tiny press room, we're all sitting actually around a conference table. We kind of don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> we're kind of, I can't believe you just said that. But at the same time, like she didn't say anything. It was She's just repeating what her friend said. And 
you know, but apparently Serena did track her down and asked her, asked her about her name and was like, are you Letitia? And she's like, yeah. And Serena said, you know, that's a black, that's a black name. And Letitia goes, yeah. And she's like, and Serena goes, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Walk away. I do, I do appreciate it. Serena, who we don't always, you know, necessarily think is that aware of other WTA players felt the need to make sure that Letitia knew what was going on. That Letitia, in finger quotes, knew what was going on. Exactly. Exactly. So, So, yeah, but Letitia Chan was fantastic. She was one of those players where I'm like, you know, I need for you to do better because I want more opportunities to talk about you and to, you know, just because, you know, the more relevant you are, the better it is. But uh, but she was great. Yeah, and she played some really good ball. I saw her, I discovered Letitia uh in Wells 2008 i saw her play sibylla bammer who was kind of a thing back then and she beat her like two in love while tina bammer was watching from the sidelines sort of horrified and it was incredible she just like was completely zoning and she is a, a, a nice watch game so hopefully that she can stick around although like i i mean i think reading too much into the olympic san diego results might be ill-advised but we'll see or reading too much in a win over yelena yankovic yeah because that's really more of the more of the issue. I mean, because I think she had taken the first set over Wickmeyer, and then Wickmeyer retired. Yeah, and then she beat Yoana and uh, shambles, just absolutely shambolic. What do you think? What do you think is going on with JJ right now? Just absolutely no confidence. Yeah, she, she, you know, it's that whole vicious circle of of you know, you need to win to get confidence, and if you're not winning, then you're just not going to have it, and. That's really where she is. I mean, she was very, very, um, you know, she was pretty down after her loss to, to Chan. I think she really had high hopes of turning her season around in, in Carlsbad. You know, weak field, you know, she finally got her first, if you can believe it, her first win on U.S. soil in 2012 in Carlsbad. Wow. Her second round match. She had lost, you know, uh, her first matches in Indian Wells, Miami, and Stanford. And Charleston. And Charleston. So, uh, yeah, you know, that was pretty incredible. So, you know... It, and let's remember, she's got Cincinnati finalist points coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So. Humble dramatically. So, I think she just doesn't have any confidence. It's it's just... It's, it's an entirely weird situation. I mean, she still travels with, like, a fairly large entourage. You know, like, a coach, a physio, and her mom. Um, and sometimes her brother. Which, if you think about it financially, that's, like, a lot of money to be doling out week to week and from what i understand she has not taken a week off this entire year hmm. like so long as the tournament has been going on that week she has played it wow yeah that's always kind of how she was she always entered a lot of tournaments i guess the player way into form but at some point you just gotta slam on the brakes and say okay this is not working exactly you need to kind of hop off the treadmill and maybe like you know cool down and take a deep breath and reset and and to get back on so you know, she's just, she doesn't know what she's doing out there. That's the biggest thing. There's just really no conviction or 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 thought into how she's hitting the ball or why she's hitting it the way that she is. And um, somehow her her kind of wily, scrambling, counterpunching has just really turned into a ball-bashing mentality without the power. Yeah, that's not good. No, it, it's just horrible to watch. It's just fun to watch. I used to love watching JJ, and it's just really, it's hard to kind of watch her go through this sort of slump. 
Well, we'll see how she does in, in Cincinnati. She has She's someone who can be known for making runs out of nowhere, though. She's done that several times in her career, so I think it might just take a little little tweak for her to turn stuff around, but time will tell. Truth and time tells all. To quote Justin Bobby from one of the greatest shows of all time, The Hills. Why, why not quote Justin Bobby? I, I could never watch those shows whatsoever. I was I always a big fan of like competition reality shows, a lot of them, because they seemed like they had a point. But stuff like The Hills, I don't know. Maybe you're a Californian, you could identify more with that, but I just they, could not. I didn't. My sister watched Laguna Beach. Okay. So she watched the whole Kristen Cavallari thing and like hated Kristen Cavallari and really liked Elsie. Um, and so I kind of was introduced to, to Lauren Conrad when she was like in like the second season of Laguna Beach or whatever, because she's supposed to be like the nice girl who kind of was overshadowed by like Kristen Cavallari's like uber bitchiness like thing. Okay. Um, she got to do the hills and then like it was good for a while. It was just kind of funny and whatever and light. And then it got really, really stupid when Spencer and Heidi came and hijacked the show and Audrina was stupid and vapid. So I pretty much only watched it for Elsie and um, her best friend, Lo, who is hilarious. So that's how, why I watched The Hills. There's just a sort of like uncomfortable scriptedness about it that I never really meshed with. Like, they, this is like it just wasn't how people talk. I don't know. And I mean, clearly it was like, okay, let's redo that. Like, you know, like, let's do that one again. Like, you know, like redoing scenes. And I, I really, I seriously only watched like a season and a half of The Hills. And then I just stopped because the whole Spider's... Uh, Hider Spency. <laughs> uh, I think we'll call him Spidey. Spidey, yeah. The whole Spidey thing was just, uh, it was just, abs- that was really when, like, I just completely stopped watching non-competitive reality television. There we go. Except for American Pawn or whatever. Oh, yes. Yeah. In Charleston, we got very familiar with the uh, True TV yeah. and many of their great shows where they have, like, reenacted uh, car repo, car repo sessions. <laughs> oh my gosh, those shows were so good. They were really, really good. I know, there was one about the pawn shop that was like the biggest pawn shop in Detroit. So like people would like come in and try to like rip them off. And then, oh, just and there was like family drama behind the scenes. And then there was the repo one, which I think secretly was our favorite. It had the lady with the eyebrows. It was so smug. <laughs> I wish I could remember some of her lines. She just said things, and they started looking at the camera like, I'm the smartest person here, and I don't know. It, it, if you haven't seen this show, I think it's called Repo something. Yeah, on we'll, True TV. we'll link down. We'll find a, we'll find a link to, to Repo Wars. Um, but yeah. So the other thing, there's no segue between Repo and World Team Tennis, but I'll try. The other thing we want to talk about this week about this week was World Team Tennis, which is winding down its regular season. And I've been going to a lot of World Team Tennis because there is a team in Washington. There's no team really in your area. I guess Sacramento is vaguely in your area. And but... you can barely get me to go to Sacramento when I went to school in Sacramento. Yeah. So I am not going to make that drive. But allow me to in- interview you about your love for World Team Tennis because okay. I, I find it fascinating. Go for it. <laughs> for the longest time, I've had kind of a mental block when it came to World Team Tennis because while I love it as a concept because I adore Billie Jean King and kind of feel like she can do no wrong, which is probably not fair one way or the other. But I'm like, okay, Billie Jean King really believes in World Team Tennis. Like, let's do this. 
But the colored courts, the scoring system, which to this day I do not understand, and the cheering during points, it's just all so jarring to a classic tennis fan, I think. So why don't you just like kind of like, why do you like, why don't you just talk, talk about why you like World Team Tennis? Like what? Well, first I talk about, I'll talk about what it is, just to explain to people. Because we have a lot of people, most American tennis fans don't know what it is. So we have a bunch of non-American listeners, so I don't expect to understand it whatsoever. Basically, um, it's teams of four people, two men, two women, and they compete in all five disciplines of tennis in one night. And the scores from those five events get added together to find out who wins each night. So there's men's singles, women's singles, men's doubles, women's doubles, and mixed doubles. And each set is played to five games, and there's no ad scoring, and it's not done like 15, 30, 40 games. It's done like one, two, three, four. Um, and so in that sense, it's like more simple to a, someone who'd never seen tennis before. The thing is that most people have seen tennis before who go to these things. So it winds up being a little confusing. If this was the first way tennis ever was, it would make sense, but it's not. So that can be a little confusing for people. And then the scores from the five events get added together, which is completely different than tennis. So if it's like five, one in the first event, and then you lose three, five, the next event, it scores like 8-6 after 2. And whoever has most at the end wins. So those five events, they have a final score. So the final scores wind up being something in the neighborhood of like 21-14 or something at the end. And yeah, so and the atmosphere is very different aside from the multicolored court, which is honestly pretty stupid and they could get rid of. I think it's just sort of a hook really? they developed when they first started. Um, yes, hmm? it looks really like 70s, 80s. Like, because the colors aren't even, like... They're not modern colors. They're, like, browns and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not great. Anyway, continue. No, those are not great. That they could definitely get rid of. Um, But then there's, like, this sort of atmosphere around it where it's sort of like a minor league baseball game. It's how Arena Falcone described it. And it's just, like, there's, like, people in the stands trying to pump people up between every point. There's, like, music that plays between points. And people get on their feet and cheers and have signs they wave around and stuff. And so it's like a real sport. People actually have a side and root for the home team, which you don't get in tennis. I mean, if you go to a tennis tournament, like I'm sure you had this a lot in San Diego, a match between two people who are generally unknown, the crowd's not going to be on either side, and they don't really necessarily seem invested at any point in the match. And so from that point of view, the world team tennis where the fans, if it's done correctly, and it's not done correctly everywhere, but in Washington it's definitely done very well. The fans do get invested and do really wind up cheering for the home team, like ridiculous to a ridiculous amount. So the last home match of the year they had was uh, they got the sub player because I've, a lot of their players left for the Olympics. So they got the sub was Adina Galovitz, who was playing against uh, Christina Pliskova of the Philadelphia team, and the crowd was going nuts cheering for Galovitz against Pliskova, which is a match between two players outside the top. 100. So that was kind of cool to see this much enthusiasm and energy around a match between two women's tennis players who really haven't ever done anything in their careers. And and, and, and one of them who just arrived in town like last week. So there really right. is a sense they are rooting for Washington, the home team, not the name on the back, which is different for tennis. And I think the players do really enjoy it. Yeah, they seem to. I mean, if you follow players who play world team tennis on Twitter, I mean, they just especially for a lot of the journeyman players. It's like a weird 
because they're affiliated with the with the team, it gives them kind of an automatic spotlight. Yeah, in a way they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, every, every night, the fans go in DC go nuts for Bobby the closer Reynolds. Like, <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't happen in in the rest of Bobby Reynolds's life. Like Arena Rodinova also, who's best known for being the sister of Anastasia Rodinova, which is not much of a claim to fame, honestly. She's like she was the main sort of non-marquee singles women's player for them last year when they first went undefeated, and it was just like clearly you could tell it was the most exciting thing that ever happened to her. Yeah. And if you follow her on Twitter, she talks about the castles like year round. Yeah, thing. So true, and and I didn't want to tweet it because it felt a little mean. But I think because she was tweeting about the the castles a lot, like, you know, this week and last week, I just kind of wanted to, like, just say, like, it's kind of cute that two arena Rodianova, like, World Team Tennis is the Olympics. Because you have your your whole Twitter was, like, blowing up about, like, with top players at the Olympics. And then arena Rodianova is just, like, refuse to lose castles. Like, you know, like, this is an amazing experience once again. So. No, I mean, it, it really is cool for them. I mean... A lot of them, a lot now. A lot of it's the Washington experience, from what I can tell, having never been to any other venue in person, but seeing them on TV. The Washington people do it so so much better than everybody else. They get full stands. They're winning, which is a big part of it, and they're really excited that sort of the winning is relevant now. When's they have this refuse to lose mantra, and I wrote an article about this. I don't know if you read or not, where Alana Kloss, who's Billie Jean King's uh, partner, and is commissioner of world team tennis said something like this shows that the competition part of this winning streak they're on shows that the competition matters like you know the results actually matter and people really are trying for these results which sometimes because of the sort of fun relaxedness of it and the occasional old fogey battles that happened between like you know McEnroe played agassi this year or something and some random match in new york um, people think it's just sort of an exhibition and i think ideally they'd like to get away from that and make it a legit league and at least in washington i think they've accomplished that it's a minor league it's a stadium that seats three thousand people but it's full every night and people are pretty into it and they have people signing up to drive down in caravans to the finals for the playoffs when they happen in charleston in september and that's like a nine-hour drive so people there are some diehard washington castles fans which is sort of cool yeah, I mean, I was going to say the, the, there are a few things that I've always kind of really liked about World Team Tennis, um, despite what I was saying before. But um, as I kind of understood how the scoring system worked, I did love the aggregate scoring because it creates situations like we saw over the weekend with Venus versus Martina Hingis um, in the Castles. Was that the Sport Times? Yes. Where, you know, like... Venus's team was down by a significant amount going into the final match. Um, so it wasn't even just that Venus had to just beat uh, Martina Hingis. She had to beat her by a certain margin and in a certain way in order to force the overtime and, and help the team. And eventually she she did. She won by a very large margin and forced a, an overtime and then a tiebreak, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that I, I like that. I thought that that kind of made it interesting. I mean, you know, like it added an extra layer of like I can't just beat you seven six like eight six in the tiebreak. I actually have to beat you. You know, I need to bagel you in order to help my team win effectively, which is which is kind of a weird way to think about it's, tennis. It's something we don't think about tennis a lot, and it's something I think that would be interesting to see, sort of how it would work in 
regular tennis, quote unquote. Um, I remember somebody com- remember hearing somebody sort of complaining about when Sloane Stevens was playing Svetlana Kuznetsova at the Australian Open, and she lost a very very tight first set, like seven six and like fourteen twelve in a tiebreak. After that, she had to like start all over again in the second set. She didn't get credit for only being down by a game, essentially. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the world team tennis aggregate scoring completely flips the basic tenets of tennis on its head because the whole notion is, okay, like, you know, you, it, it, all that doesn't matter. You know, even in, right down to uh, scoring within a set that you, you could, one person could be holding at love for the entire set and the other person could be getting pushed to multiple deuces every single game. So obviously the points kind of get skewed. Yeah. At the end of the day, like if you just win the tie break or it doesn't really matter how you do it, you just have to get to the finish line kind of, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then you get that and, and, you know, you wipe the slate clean and you start a new set and, um, you know, no, uh, so even if you're down, you know, two sets to love at a, uh, you know, at a slam, it's still a surmountable, you know, deficit. Yeah, it, um, just, it just changes your like approach. It t- changes the whole approach to the matches. Like they had something match in DC this year. Sam Query was a marquee player who was playing for your hometown, Sacramento Capitals, and they were, and he was playing Bobby Reynolds, and Bobby Reynolds won like three games. It was five three. Mm-hmm. Sam Query won, and people were like stoked that you know he kept within that much because those three games like add up. Uh, that he didn't get shot, they didn't get blown out more. The five three was a really good effort for Bobby and helped his team in the aggregate score compared to if he lost five one. That's so weird. That's Isn't just, it weird? Like, and psychologically, that's just such a weird thing to like lose because in ten in tennis, there's never that concept of I lost the set, but I did just lose it seven five. Like, right. like, you know, you're, you're sitting there on the changeover and you're like, well, shit, I lost the set. I'm down a set and now i got to start it all over. And also, um, when it's tied 4-4 and that's like a tie break for who wins the event, it doesn't really matter that much who wins mm-hmm. that one next game. Because it, it doesn't matter. Like, it's just one point overall. Yeah. It's so weird. It's very different. It's just like, if you haven't been there and you have a chance to go, do it just because, as you as you sort of mockingly said... Um, when I was tweeting about it, like it's like hearing about the first Wimbledon on the moon. It really is. It's totally different. Like it's as if tennis had never existed, and someone created this whole new scoring system for it out of scratch. Which is a bold way to go about making something successful, having it be so different. And I think that probably has hurt them to a degree. But yeah, and I think that it's also kind of a probably. I mean, again, I haven't been. To, I've never gone to a world team tennis uh, event. Although after this year and just kind of like your enthusiasm and just, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe my maturation as a tennis fan, maybe like I, I definitely do want to make it out to one, uh, at some point, uh, just to experience it. But I think that it would probably be a good litmus test for if you love tennis to go to, and you're only been exposed to traditional tennis to go to world team tennis and to see if you still like it. If, if tennis is put into that context, because it's still, it's still forehands, it's still backhands. It still serves. It you still win a point the same way. Exactly. All that's the same. But so what is it about tennis that you actually love? Is it, you know, and I feel like because there would be a contrast there, it'd be an opportunity to actually kind of really think about that, which I think would be really interesting. 
No, it is very cool. It's, it's much more, it's like, it's so, I don't know if there's really any other sport that has like the equivalent of World Team Tennis. It's like very much a rogue entity in the middle of the schedule. Like, yeah, I mean, I was going to say like arena football, but maybe not. But like that has players play both. It's almost like when some NBA players like go back to, I don't know what the right term for it is, like a, like a court, like in the middle of some urban city mm. and they play like one-on-one or like three-on-three games for like these big crowds, you know, come to watch them play pickup. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that. It's like, it's just sort of the rules in the atmosphere are completely different. And people, there are people who sort of like tennis for the quietness of it, for the gentility and preppiness of it. And you don't get that at all in World Team Tennis, so. Street. Yeah, it's it's a little more street, I guess. Billie Jean King is nothing if not street. <laughs> She'll cut you. She'll cut you deep. Yes. I really, really wanted that bobblehead that they were giving away at the, uh, whatever that arena was giving them away last night. It was at the Breakers game. Yeah, so that's Orange County. Um. Yeah, I, if anybody listening picked up a Billie Jean King bobblehead and doesn't want it, you know where to find me. Exactly. For sure. So. That was, I just kind of, I wanted to talk about it because it was just, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, even from the Carlsbad media room, like when Venus was playing that, you know, that last uh, set or whatever against Martina, like everybody had kind of pulled up the stream and we were all watching along and it was really entertaining. Like we all really enjoyed it. So it was good. And I got to say the atmosphere at that place, they're playing like in Albany for one match was really pretty dead compared to what it's like in DC. Like the fan, fan participation wise, it didn't seem like people in the, in the stands were really getting that into it for that. Maybe that's because the road team was the one doing the big comeback. But uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. If you haven't been there, it's just like it'll make you think that like tennis is sort of could be a sport that's like a normal sport, you know. And tennis is not a normal sport nope. the way we see it. So it's interesting. Good stuff. So the other interesting development in tennis this week. Uh, next week is the Olympics, which we should probably talk about because they are sort of a big deal. Uh, the draws came out today. And what were your first thoughts upon seeing these draws? Uh, my first thoughts upon seeing these draws was, wow, how times have changed. Because we now seem to have at least some modicum of stability on both the men's and women's tour. Not that it, there hasn't been for the men. I mean, for the most part, there has been remarkable stability. Yeah. And even if there's just flipping and flopping between one, two, and three, and four, like, you know, they're, they're, it's still stable. Um, and you kind of, with the men, you kind of, like, go with kind of whoever's the hot hand at the time. But for the most part, you know, it's pretty stable. But for the women, it was just, especially because it's Wimbledon, to kind of look at a WTA draw and just be like, meh, oh, that's, Serena's going to win that. It's been, like, a really long time since I've yeah. kind of that sort of... Uh, stability and I, I just remember you know this morning when I was writing up my my draw preview for SI it was kind of less fun <laughs> yeah I, I can understand that yeah, because I I like talking about I like men's tennis and I like writing about men's tennis because of the technical aspects of it I like you know looking at the matchups and you know things like that and and that is what I like right I mean kind of one of many reasons why I like writing about men's tennis um, but with the women, like, I really do like and almost crave the drama of really not knowing uh, what's going to happen. And because of that, really enjoying kind of breaking down matches and breaking down draws and, you know, guessing and, and hedging your bets as to how it's going to break, if it's going to break one way or the other. Yeah. 
And so, so yeah, I was, I don't know. On some level, I guess I was kind of disappointed. With the um, top, there really almost is a WTA top big four at this point. Yep, I agree. Um, Azarenka, Sharapova, Redvonska, and Serena are the top four. And those are the four players you would think be most likely win any tournament they enter. Yes. So with, uh, and then the next ones are also like pretty much the next ones. There's not really any floaters to speak of right now. Um, the next stage is sort of like Soser, who obviously is not really a factor on grass, but she will be once she gets back on hard. Kvitova is there in like sort of the six, seven region. I mean, it's just, it's very, Kerber is nearby. I mean, it's just, it's pretty stable. Like and, if I were to look at it, like you have the WTA top four, which is pretty stable. Um, they might flip around in the rankings, but they're, they're right now the top four. You have Kvitova, who's basically Del Potro, totally capable, but yeah. who knows if she can bring it on any given day. Uh, Kerber is basically my David Ferrer. Like, okay. you know, just kind of, She'll be there. She might push you, but does she have the tools to really, you know, break through? I don't know. And then you have like, you know, your Lissikis who, you know, when, you know, it's like a birdage almost like when she's on fire. Yeah. She could take anybody out, but um, yeah. So it, 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 you know, you kind of have, uh, you can almost map them a little bit, the ATP and the WTA right now, which is kind of fun, but I don't know. I miss the unpredictable nature of, of the WTA a little bit. Be, and careful, it's only be careful what you wish for, Courtney. We might be winding up with, you know, gold medalist Tamea Babos in a second here. Oh, I know. It's true. It's true. I mean, because I don't like, you know, being constantly having to write the, like, everybody back off the WTA storyline either. Or, you know, the WTA is, you know, needs domination or parity is a sign of weakness. But I don't know. I uh, Right now, the WTA breaks too cleanly, I guess. A certain way like like you know you look at it and you don't because all the players are pretty much correctly seated you really yeah. don't, we've had years now three to four years of just crazy ass like first and second round matches that have no business happening right like you know and now you don't you kind of don't really have that because everybody's you know serena's playing a lot so she's seated where she should be you know in the top five and yeah. Um, the only well, real floater we have right now is Kim Clijsters, who is a complete unknown on any given day. What do you think she's going to do at her last Olympics? And what she says is her second to last tournament I saw, which I thought was kind of strange. I guess she thinks the U.S. Open, but she's not playing any warm-ups? I, I don't know. I don't know what her deal is. It's just hard to make anything out of her at this day, at this point. Um, <laughs> she's in a nice part of the draw because she's in the Sam Stosser part of the draw, mm-hmm. which is pretty good on grass. And so that sort of gives the draw some more stability, though, because when Soser goes out, predictably, on grass, um, Kleisters is right there to fill in her section. And so Kleisters would get, like, Soser, Ivanovich, who she would probably beat, um, and then Lissikir, Kvitova, which would be, like, a toss-up. So, I don't know. I The way, the way Kleisters went out in uh, Wimbledon was really, really striking. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Are we a little bit fed up with Kim? A little bit. Explain why we feel that way. I don't know. We okay. We'll break away from the we. But I, 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 I mean, I haven't. Not that I've talked to you about this before, but I just kind of feel like this farewell is like so not what it should be. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it might as well just not happen. Like it would have been just better if she just never mentioned it and just like retired at the end of the year and just hung up her shoes and just held a press conference and was like, yep, that's it. 
it's become a production that's sort yeah. of not becoming of a lot of people. I mean, there's, I mean, tennis is a, doesn't have a really a script to which to retire by. People have done it different ways. Elena Dementieva essentially held an ambush ceremony right after her last match. Nobody knew she was retiring until there were like rumors spreading about it in the last set of that last match. Um, so that maybe is sort of a more sort of, I don't that, know, crazy way to go about it. But Kleister's okay. is really milking this. Like everything is her last this, her last that. And it can get a little exhausting when it's been going on for months. As well, the other thing as well, and the reason why I'm just, I don't know, I'm a bit kind of blah about, or it's difficult for me to muster up the kind of emotional, like, oh, this is Kim's last Olympics. This is Kim's last Wimbledon. This is Kim's last this, last that. Is that unlike kind of like what Marat Safin did, um, and even Dementieva, if you think about it, um, when they had made up their mind that they were going to retire, you know, Marat played. He, 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 you know, flies all the way to Shanghai. He plays, you know, Indian Wells. He plays, like, you know, uh, you know, for the most part, a bunch of tournaments during his farewell to kind of almost give fans an opportunity to actually see him and, you know, and, and kind of bid farewell or whatever. And I just kind of feel like with Kim, like, she's not playing anything. Like, she, even she feels like she's, like, just tr- she's just trying to get through this. She's mailing it in. She's a part-timer completely. Uh, and it's it there's it just leaves kind of a bad taste. I understand why I you know and totally not ripping on the reasons why, but from a sporting perspective, it's a bit weak. It's on we talked about this I think after Miami when I had a presser with her where she where we talking was she talking about how she hadn't practiced outdoors that much before Miami and I was like well why not I mean like there's not outdoor courts available in the world. She's like well you know I wanted to stay home with the family until like right before so she's not. You know, it's not the number one priority in her life, the way most of these tunnel vision professional athletes have to be. Right. And that was very visible in her uh, loss to Kerber. Yes. Where she just got really blown off the court by somebody who, prior to this year, had never been considered an elite player. And just didn't really have it in her to stick around and figure out how to fight. Yeah. Work her way through the match. And so, you know, it is, It. I don't know, I just. I just feel like... It's hard for me to care if she doesn't care. Yeah. Yes, and about uh, right. and just also because her actual level of play is is so inconsistent, um, it's hard to even predict her. You know, even to put in time to predict her matches, that's impossible because she could lose to Vinci. She can be that bad. Yeah. Um, and she could make it to the quarters without dropping a set. So I don't know. It's just kind of like okay, well, there's Kim. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And it's just and, and she could and she could also meddle. Yeah, that's she completely really, within her. Completely so. within. She could. She could. I think she could. I mean, wait, I misread this. Sorry. She's in the Sharapova quarter, not the Kvitova quarter, like I said before. And yeah, she. I mean, she can beat Sharapova, theoretically. Yeah, that 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 uh, that half that little quarter can go a lot of different ways. Yeah. I uh. Uh, Mikhail Ivanovich, that's a toss-up for me on grass. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisicki Shvedova, that could be interesting. Yeah. Round. Um, and then the winner of that would likely play Sharapova, although Sharapova, well, no, Saparova on grass, I don't I don't think she's that great. Yeah, it's interesting. She made, she made the finals. No, she didn't. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. She made the finals in, in Charleston, which is green, but not grass. 
uh, green, but not grass. But no, I mean, I thought that she played really well in Eastbourne, but I'm realizing that I think that she only made like maybe the quarters or semis. Okay. Yeah. We also have the men's draw, which is, unlike the women's draw, which is very balanced, the men's draw is completely lopsided in a way that I haven't seen an ATP draw lopsided in a long time. Well, that's what happens when Rafa doesn't come and play. Yeah, what did what did you think about um what do we what we haven't talked since Rafa pulled out with his injury. So, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk um, about Let's talk about Rafa. Rafa announces withdrawal um about a week ago, I guess. And right right near when the deadline was so you could get replaced by somebody from your own country. Um so he will be replaced. He was replaced by Feliciano Lopez. Um, I'm sure Feliciano Lopez will send him a gift basket of conditioner and gratitude. Um <laughs> What do you what did what do we make of this uh, this sudden loss of the number two seed? Because really, the Met top four don't haven't missed a whole lot of tournaments in their careers. Correct, correct. Although of the one that has probably missed the most, it's been Rafa. You know, I mean, he's he's the one that's had to take this first time he's taken extended time off. This wouldn't this won't even be the longest amount you know break most likely that he'll take. Um, you know, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't completely surprised that he pulled out of. The Olympics, you know, obviously he was really excited to, to carry the flag and everything. To, and you know, great patriot, sportsman, all these sorts of things. But the fact is, he already has one mm-hmm. gold medal. It's not something that he kind of, I think, would feel compelled to check off his to do list. And also, I think that there, that it it show it does show how serious I think the knee injury is. I mean, I. I I mean, people forget. I mean, in case people, well, in case people forgot, he did lose to Rochelle in the first week of Wimbledon. He's had a long time off. And the fact that he wasn't able to get himself into a position where he thought that he could compete is worrisome. I would be shocked, shocked if he he plays uh, Toronto. I don't think that's going to happen. If he returns, it'll be Cincy. And even then, I bet you something tells me it's, he's going to be really pushing himself to get to Cincy, that, that he would be playing it to try and get matches before the Open. Yeah. Not necessarily because um, he's 100% healthy. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not, like, worried about him career-wise, but, I mean, it's just kind of a – it puts the year – it really flips, I think, kind of the Rafa story in 2012, uh, you know, because he just – looked like he had really fixed everything and, and you know through the clay season and, and finally shook Novak and beat Novak in the final and you know got another French Open um, title and then you know was really building momentum to make it like a three-man race you know uh, yeah. sorry but, you know to have it really be like Ed was playing well Novak was playing all right and Rafa was playing really well and now it's kind of not even a two-man race because i Despite the fact that Novak's made like three, you know, slam finals in the last two, I just really don't think he's shown up, you know, in the big pressure matches at the at the, at the French and Wimbledon. So I'm kind of feeling this is all fed all the time until 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 proven otherwise. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think even though I didn't really, for some reason, it didn't really register me when it happened. But I think for the injury perspective. I almost think canceling that Real Madrid exhibition mm. was just as big a deal because yeah. he was very excited for that. That was going to be a big thing. It was like for his charity. It was for like 80,000 people. People take those things seriously. Like Serena, after she cut her foot, okay. she went to go play that exhibition in Belgium um, in front of like 80,000 people or something like that. Like, um, hmm? 
that's the that's the current record and will be the, remain the record for number of like the biggest crowd to watch a tennis match. Yeah, and if you watch, if you ever seen highlights from that match, she could barely move. Um, but yeah, she was uh, she was dedicated to do it, and the fact that Rafa pulled out uh, makes it interesting. I don't know if how much we're supposed to think that Rafa's knee got that much worse between him winning the French Open in such dominant fashion and Wimbledon. Because that's completely different. It's not. It's not like grass is an unkind surface for the body, for a knee anyway. Because um, there wasn't one. There's never been one sort of fall or incident that we've been pointed to to explain right. this. Um, I don't know. It, it's just weird to think that he won the French Open, and it's, like I said, beating Djokovic, not dropping a set before that, barely coming close to dropping a set at all, even until the third set of that final. And then he's seemingly at full strength, his best he's ever been, talking superlatives, greatest of all time, conversation again. And then two weeks later, he suddenly has been wounded all along. I don't know. It's it's a weird sort of U-turn mm-hmm. in the narrative that I, I can't quite wrap my head around completely. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot of details. And, and um, the Nadal camp seems to be talking in very kind of dire terms, you know, like Tio Tony saying, oh, this is you know, his last Olympics or something like that. That's, and it's like, okay, yeah, maybe, I don't know. But, um, you know, uh, I, I just can't shake the feeling that there's a lot of spin around this. And mm-hmm. which is totally unsubstantiated. I'm not saying I know anything that like anybody else knows or like has inside information, but it's just something about it. that just doesn't feel right. And there's like a missing puzzle piece, but. Um, it's sort of the way it was in 2009. When the other time when he missed significant time due to injury was right after his other sort of big red letter loss in his career mm-hmm. to Soderling. Um, and he pulled out of the next slam with knee tendonitis, and, which is pretty much the same injury that's being talked about this time. Yeah. The missing piece, I guess, in that time was his parents getting divorced, um, mm-hmm. which didn't get revealed until later that that was sort of weighing on him. But also these injury plots come after these big losses. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's there's a, there's definitely something. There's a lot we don't know. That's all, that's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but his absence definitely just kind of reshuffles the draw, so that you, you know, people can look. People can rip on Andy Murray all they want, but he has been a good number four insofar as he's kept the draw at least slightly balanced. Oh yeah. Now that there isn't really, I mean, David Ferrer is David Ferrer and he's really great and we all love him and dogged, hard fought and every single, you know, cliched superlative that has been used for his career. Scrappy. Scrappy, scrappy doo. He, uh, he's not, he doesn't fit the number four role because I don't think that, as, as, well, at least on grass, I don't think that any of us really thinks that he's like the guy that's going to pull off the upset. No. Um, Whereas Andy always kind of did provide that little balance where you're like, well, he's kind of proven that he can, you know. Um, so without Rafa there, you have just a ridiculously uh, uneven draw. Um, so that the bottom, you know, uh, Federer is up at the top. But, uh, you know, the highest player in his quarter is, I think, Tipsarovic. Um, the other top seeds anchoring his draw, Del Potro and Ferrer. Um and then everyone else pretty much is at the bottom of the bottom half. Which yeah, is... there's, there's, on, there's only one other player in Federer's half who has ever made the semis at Wimbledon. 
and that's Nalbandian, who <laughs> is not expected to really make the semis of this tournament or really be a threat, right. except for maybe to some shins. Um, but he Federer does have a tricky first couple rounds, I guess, against two guys who he has been down two sets to before Wimbledon, which would be enough to be out in a best-of-three situation. Um, Faya and Benito in the first couple rounds, if Benito makes it past Yuzny, which I don't know why anyone would assume he would. Right. Yeah, and so this is his draw, and it's very, very open. And it's sort of more striking um, when you think about the format of the Olympics and realizing that somebody in that Ferrer, Del Potro, Simone, Nishikori quarter will be in a medal round. Yep. They'll get to be at least in the bronze medal match. So... It's just, it's it's sort of a more, this is a tournament where you really, because there are constellation prizes in this tournament in a way there aren't in other tournaments, this is one where you really would like for the draws to be even, and they're just not. Yeah. I mean, in one half you have Federer and the above-mentioned people who haven't made World in semifinals, and then the other side you have Burdich, Roddick, uh, Songa, Murray, Djokovic, uh, Baghdadis has made one, uh, you know, just a Lopez, Felicia Lopez is a very strong grass quarter. Leighton Hewitt is in there. It's just, it's a little, Gasquet, it's a little bit much. Yeah. I think this is equal, equal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much talent down, down below. And so, yeah, I mean, I, it's just, it's, uh, you'd be hard pressed not to pencil fed into the, into the final, in my opinion. Yeah, completely. Unless yeah. you really think he's going to come out and just, you know, Crap the bed, as they say in hockey. Yeah, um, no, like I said, Benito, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that um, what will be the only way Federer doesn't make the final. Now, once we get to the final, it's a completely different beast, depending on how else is there, because it's best of five and it's a little bit different. But the only way that Federer goes out before the final to me is if the format fails him or he fails the format. So it's the whole best of three issue as opposed to best of five where his talent can kind of rule across, you know, five sets. Whereas in best of three, it's a, it's a bit more of a, of a shootout. But he was just serving so well at Wimbledon. And I don't I, know. I do, see, I do see one name in his draw I hadn't noticed before. In the third round, he could play Jill Muller. Yeah, true. Which actually is, I mean, actually there's a couple third round tricky ones. And he could play in the third round, he could play Muller, Istamin, or Verdasco. All of whom have big games in their own ways. If they're not, they definitely would all be heavy underdogs. But you know, you know, somebody who has like a great draw, who you don't know if he's going to take advantage of it is, or not, is Isner. Yeah, he should make the quarterfinals, and then best of three shot against Fed. I mean, the guy beat Novak best of three on a hard court. You know. Yeah, but, but except for Newport, Isner's sort of awful on grass. Isner, Isner has not won a match at Wimbledon against somebody whose name doesn't rhyme with. Schmickle Schmahu. <laughs> exactly right. But in the first round, he's got Raucus, and then second round would be the winner of Rendy Lu or Malek Jaziri. And then third round would be, I guess, projected would be Tipsarovic. Maybe, maybe now Bandian. Now Bandian. But it'd be either now be or Tipsy, uh, most winnable. likely, which is winnable. And then he'd get a shot at Fed, which would be, I think, fantastic. Uh, but how can you really bet on a guy who has never made it past the second round of Wimbledon? Yeah. Which brings us to a different question, sort of, based on grass. What do you think of the Olympics, this sort of pure competition being on a specialty surface for this one time? I do 
brought it up, you brought that up in the toss, um, and I thought it was a really good point. Um, but at the same time, because it, the notion of you know the fact that you know right now it's being played on on grass, which is specialty surface, it's entirely likely that in Rio it could be played on clay. If, mm-hmm. I mean, they South America they have you know clay courts. Uh, it was played on clay in Barcelona, um, and uh, or or you know hard courts. And I get I, on some level. Well, it should just be on hard courts, which is a neutral surface. But that seems a bit kind of, I don't know, wrong also. Like, it's neutral to us. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like Americans, like, we play on hard courts, and that's what to us is, like, neutral surface. And, you know, a majority of the tour is played, obviously, on hard courts as well. But uh, but I guess I kind of don't really have a problem with it. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other sports where there's a specialty surface issue it really isn't i mean if well in other sports it would be like a completely different sport is the thing like beach volleyball and volleyball are the only thing i can think of that's at all comparable and those are different athletes who do those sports yeah no i'm I'm trying to think like maybe even just like you know weather or some sort of something that some x factor there are different golf courses that play different ways it's not an Olympic sport, but there are certain you know, players who are better on, you know, British Lynx types courses or. Exactly. Or if you look at like NASCAR is kind of the same way. Like yeah. certain tracks, you know, some drivers are better than others. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think on the whole, I don't think I have a problem with it. But that, that being said, it also does, in my opinion, support my argument that tennis doesn't belong in the Olympics because. <laughs> Because again, it's it's if this thing, if an Olympic gold medal is supposed to be something that's elevated as the fifth slam, then I'm not entirely sure. And putting it on a specialty surface helps because doesn't it again just kind of contribute to its kind of freak of nature, um, luck of the draw? You know, the one Olympics that you're actually played during your prime happens to be on a surface that you suck at. Yeah, that's why you don't have the gold medal. It's not because you don't you're not good enough to earn it. It's seems, just that, that seems very fair to me. Yeah. So, I, so go read our thoughts if you haven't. We spent a lot of paragraphs talking about this stuff. And we'll link some of the other, right, because it kind of started a bit of a firestorm, apparently. Yeah. Or at least a wave of, you know, it's a good topic du jour. Yes. For sure. So we'll see. And we'll, and we'll talk about it after. I mean, once the balls actually start getting hit, I think we'll stop thinking about that part of it. I agree. Thing. Maybe we won't, but it'll at least be in the background as we uh, just get excited for what's going to happen. I mean, tennis is not going to be. I mean, I'll watch plenty of uh, plenty of the Olympics. I'll be during, at this uh, Washington tournament as well. But tennis, I don't know. Even for tennis fans, I don't think it's a foreground Olympic sport. Right, right. I mean, and I think too. You know, one thing to take into consideration is just the fact that. Because I guess my problem is that it's not that I'm not excited to see tennis at the Olympics. Like, I'm really, really excited for the tournament, actually. And I know the players are really excited about it as well. But I think that there is a little bit of kind of, like, revisionist histories. And, like, I saw some posts today about, you know, interviews with Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf. And they talk about how, like, it was better than a slam. I'm like, of course you say that. You won it. You won the gold medal. But nobody, I think who ends their career and doesn't have a gold medal is going to really think that they're somehow empty. And what was like the point of all that versus like, if you kind of 
you know, never win the French Open or, you know, or, or you never win a slam at all. I feel like there is kind of an emptiness about it. Yeah. Because it's, it's this weird one-off thing. There's no build-up to the Olympics. I mean, it's just like, it's not like there's an Olympic warm-up season. There would no addition. I thought there would be. I thought there would be like, I thought the tours would get together and put one or two real big grass tournaments in between the Olympics and Wimbledon, but it didn't happen. It's just out there on its own with no sort of trials set up like we talked about at some other point. Um, yeah, and players win it, and it's a very winner-take-all thing. I mean, nobody says like, oh, what did you do? Oh, I, you know, made the third round of the Olympics in my career. That was great. Or yeah. as some Australian... Did you see this article about Leighton Hewitt complaining about his doubles thing where they were saying um, in like 2004 Olympics, it came in 17th. And in the 2008 Olympics, it came in 33rd, which translates as... He lost in the second round in Athens in the first round in Beijing. No, coming in thirty third. That's ridiculous. Totally agree. And I was I was thinking about this today because there's all this talk about you know if which players are going to skip the opening ceremonies because obviously competition starts next day on Saturday. Yeah. And to me, I just was like, look, if you don't have a shot at a medal, go to the opening ceremonies. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like because no one cares if you lost the first four five rounds no one cares like yeah. make sort of maybe i'll remember maybe but does anybody i mean if you were to ask most people they would not be able to tell you who came in fourth in beijing without thinking about it right i'm not was, i can tell you but i'm not most people right you're not most people i'm not most people but like it was not like serena won. serena never talks about oh yeah i made the quarterfinals at the olympics that was pretty good no i, I don't even remember when who she lost to she lost to dementia there you go. I, I know it from like looking it up, but like I had to look it up because I was like, I almost, I actually had to stop and be like, did Serena play in Beijing? Like, that's the thing about the Olympics is that either you make, there's no such thing as like a career result, right? Like, oh, I made the quarterfinals of the Olympics. That's the best result I've had at the Olympics. Like pat myself on the back. It's like, yeah, no, it's very, it's very winner takes all. Yeah. So, um, you know, whether or not that makes it even a, elevates it even more or makes it lesser you know that's a debate to have but um i think that's very well put if you're not gonna win if you really don't think you can win a medal go to the ceremony just go once in a lifetime thing like you don't know if you're ever going to be back like because if you're not if you don't have a shot at a medal you truly do not know if you're ever going to be back it means that you're like you know outside of the top 15 effectively like when varvar lepchenko tweeted i'm not on the schedule for saturday i get to go to the opening ceremony i mean clearly Varva, just go anyway. You know. Right. No, that's that's kind of what I was thinking, and and well, I I was thinking if you're not going to win the, t- the the if you're not going to win a medal, or if your match is like one of the first three matches on, okay, maybe you should probably like Christina McHale, Ryan Harrison. You guys aren't going to win probably medals, but you're first on at eleven thirty. <laughs> I don't think you can go to the opening ceremonies. <laughs> yeah, I wish there was a way for them to leave early. I think it's probably really hard to leave early. Yeah, I think because the problem is that if they go, because they're if you're not playing on Saturday, you can go to opening ceremonies and then stay in the village. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the athlete's village. And so get some rest and then wake up in the morning and then come back to Wimbledon. But if you're, if you're first on, you, you basically do need to, like, go all the way back to Wimbledon, which means that given how the ceremony is supposed to run, like, I don't think you would get back to Wimbledon Village until, like, two in the morning at the earliest yeah so that's not gonna work indeed 
So, so any, you know, so I don't think Anna Ivanovich is going to be there. She's first on against Mikhail. Berdych will probably have to skip it. He's at noon. So it kind of sucks. Yeah. It also, it just sucks at the Olympics for a lot of that. A lot of it, sh- there should almost be like a day off in between. A middle something. Sunday, if you will. <laughs> or just have something where it's like non-elimination events. You know, have like basketball games or round robin something. It's soccer. Yeah. They should have just had soccer events because the soccer players don't even go anyway because they're not in London. Yeah. That's why it's been going on right now. But um, that's a good point. Yeah. So since we finally made a good point, we'll end it there. Thanks for listening. Once again, enjoy the Olympics. Enjoy Mary Carillo doing late night. Love it. Try, try to watch some handball because handball will change your life. Ball is the curling of the Summer Olympics. It really is. Except for it makes sense. And, well, not that curling doesn't make sense. It makes sense in its own way. But, and it's just something where you watch it. If you're American, think to yourself, why are we not the best country in the world at this sport? This is everything we should be great at. And yet, it's one of only three sports we haven't won a gold medal in. So. The other two. And the other two are table tennis and badminton. Yeah, I totally concede table tennis and badminton. But yeah, those are Asian. honest. Those are those are honestly Asian sports. Asia dominates those. Whatever, like this, like hand eye, like you know those sorts of sports. But handball is just you, you, you run, you throw, you leap. There should almost be something like at the NBA draft, like if there's like a green room of players. Not that this is actually how it works, but like if there's a green room of players, like all the players who don't get picked, someone comes up to them and says, you know, son, I'd like to talk to you about handball or something. You know, just to get them into it. Because we have the athletes for it. That would be an amazing movie, what you just proposed. Yeah, there we go. So someone can go steal that idea. Exactly. That, you know, jump from the three-point line and try and throw that basketball into a goal. And And your target is way bigger than a basket. It's a whole goal. It's a whole goal. And you can throw it. Yeah. pretty. It's pretty great. Michael Jordan would have been amazing at handball. Yeah, he would have been amazing at a lot of things, though. That's also true. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening once again. We'll see you next time. Enjoy the Olympics. Enjoy City Open from Washington, starring Marty Fish. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Ciao.